Let's pray together. Generous God, you already give us so much, but give us yet more, we pray. Give us open minds. Give us inquiring spirits. And give us the sheer curiosity to wonder what comes next as you lure us all into your kingdom, the kingdom which you alone can bring. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I've been trying for a great many years now to resist joining the English smug middle class. But I think I've failed and there hasn't been much I've been able to do about it. I wasn't born into the middle class. I was born into a working class family on Merseyside and I remain very, very proud of those roots. And I'm still connected to my original home because I visit my mother who still lives on Merseyside. But as you'll be aware, once you get education and once you're able to move around and once you start getting jobs which propel you into new social settings, and when you get the hang of how to handle middle-class customs, you can deceive people, including yourself. And what you start pretending to do in order to survive becomes part of you. So I can't deny I've become middle-class, even if it wasn't something I chose to become. And I'm English, and there's not much I can do about that. But what about the smugness? That's surely something I can do something about, and I really hope it is. But I'm struggling, because I notice that when I look at other English middle-class people, especially white ones like me, there's often an air of self-satisfaction, of confidence, of lack of concern, the sense that despite Brexit and climate change, despite world poverty and immigration crises, despite financial anxiety and political uncertainty, things are okay really, deep down. And we, if we happen to be English and middle class, well, things are okay for us really. And then perhaps we end up as smug. But it's when I find myself thinking all those things about myself and my own situation that I want to be caught up short. Because that kind of lack of restlessness could easily have become not a basic contentment based on a faith in a God who is the one in whom all creature kind lives and moves and has its being. Perhaps it's become a kind of smug self-contentment that too lazily and complacently sits back and counts its blessings, not because they are blessings, but because they're seen as the rewards of a life well lived. Gifts are mistaken for earnings. Features of life which should emphasize the relatedness without which none of us can live fully humanly become private possessions, all recipes for smugness. So ideally, I want none of it. 
and nor does the Apostle Paul. But in the search for true contentment, a contentment which generally recognizes that no one's, no one's contentment, and certainly not the contentment of all, is possible without God's provision, in the midst of that search, there's just far too much which leaves us, and perhaps those of us who've ended up as members of the smug English middle class, in danger of assuming that we really have earned our well-being. But if the Apostle Paul doesn't agree with that, what does he say? That's why I've chosen the reading from Philippians. You might want to have that in front of you as I speak to see if you agree with my reading of certain verses from this text which might help us deal with the dilemma that I'm presenting to you. Paul is, of course, a self-supporting minister, a minister without appointment, or a minister in an appointment beyond the control of the church. Boy, is he beyond the control of the church. He is, after all, shaping the church's very being. He's a lay evangelist, in fact. We can't, in Methodist terms, even call him a deacon or a presbyter. And he's a bit of a maverick. It's the self-supporting aspect of his ministry, though, that I want to focus on because of the way that that's often been handled in Christian belief, thought, and practice. This little section of one of Paul's letters has very significant economic and political repercussions for us as Christians. I even want to suggest that these verses have a huge impact on what we understand salvation to be, even though their content seems very far removed from the heavy theological sections of Paul's so-called major letters. There's no direct mention of death or resurrection of Christ, the body of Christ, or the kingdom of God here. But it's true, isn't it, that if we can't make connections between the death and resurrection of Christ, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, and our everyday affairs, then something's gone badly wrong. But the question is how we do it. So let's just dig into what Paul is saying here in Philippians in very practical terms. He's probably in prison when he's writing his letter. He's probably not being very well fed. The Romans won't have had much of a welfare system, I guess, for the incarcerated. He's connecting with the Philippians in part because he's hinting that it would be nice to receive another food parcel. And he's probably thinking about where he and his team are going to be heading next once he gets out of prison because they'll need travel expenses. The Philippians have helped him in the past and he's hoping they will do so again. He is dependent on them and others like them. And even perhaps particularly on the members of the smug middle class in Philippi and elsewhere, as they're the ones with the money. He's buttering them up a bit, whilst knowing that he is fully dependent on them. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't make for comfortable reading. There are economic and power imbalances at work here, yet Paul has to find his way through them. He can't do his tent-making in prison we assume, so he really is dependent on them. He's got to think carefully about his rhetoric because he really does need their support, but he doesn't want to offend the Philippians as they may not help him 
if he does. And in the middle of all this, he gives us a statement which has been both helpful and problematic through the history of Christian practice. He says, and I, this is in the uh, version of the New Revised Standard Version, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I have learned to be content with whatever I have. In the version we have on the text in front of you, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He goes on to clarify a bit further. I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. Paul is at least claiming then to have had experiences of extremes. Whether he really did, of course, we don't know. But most of us, I guess, have not been short of food in prison. Even if plenty of people, including Christians, past and present, have. Most of us, I hope, have not had the experience of being genuinely, really hungry. Though again, many people across the world and many people in this country have had and have that experience very often, far too often. The availability of food is such a simple, basic need, and yet astonishingly, given our logistical and technical abilities as a human race, we still do not make it happen that food is shared fairly and equitably. Human sin is very deeply rooted. But Paul chips in with his, I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I suggest this is one of the biggest challenges possible to our consumer culture. We are pressed, as we know, to want more, always, always to want more and more. Though we may exercise restraint, we will all fail and we'll still want more of whatever it is we like. I wonder how Paul would have coped in our present society. Could he have said, I've learned to be content with whatever I have here, now, in our context? Could he have done it, I wonder? But as it stands, we should be thankful that his words catch us up short. It's wonderful to think that our Christian faith is shaping a way of being, believing, thinking, and living that means we can be content, content deep down, but also content with what we have, not needing any more. One drawback of what Paul says, of course, is that people of different backgrounds and different incomes have different numbers of possessions to start with. So Paul may indeed be content, but his contentment doesn't address the issue of inequality. The other big drawback is that this kind of approach has too often led Christians to a kind of make-do spirituality, as if God has put us in our place, whatever that is, with which we should be content. There should be no boat rocking, no politicking, no causing a fuss, 
Things are as they are. God's put us in our place, and things are as God wants them to be. So let's leave them that way. It's a quietism which leads to a very wrong kind of conservatism, of course. But why then is this passage from Paul and this statement from Paul so important? And how are, to we, how are we to receive them and use them now? They're important, I suggest, because they remind us that matter matters. Daily bread, especially where it is lacking, is crucially important. We may not need a high level of material comfort to feel and be content, but we do need some. We do not have a chance of a sense of contentment without it. This is often overlooked when we talk about salvation or living by or in faith or growing in holiness. Sometimes our focus on faith is so inward, so inner, that we can overlook the basics. Food and material well-being may not bring us to faith, nor should they of themselves, but their absence can prevent some people having a chance of encountering the living God because their stomachs are empty. The element of salvation, which is that deep inner contentment on the basis of which Paul is able to say, I've learned to be content with whatever I have, may not come easily in such a situation. Paul, of course, is confident, he says it a bit later in the text, God will satisfy every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And it's, and it's out of that richness that we have and are anything at all. We forget that at our, at our peril as Christians. Humanity forgets that at its peril. If we were more able to live with the recognition that all is given, all is given. And despite our employment practices and our wealth creation habits, less is earned than we sometimes think. We might be more inclined to ensure that the contentment of all, for which read the salvation of all, is what we should be primarily interested in. Let's be clear, God wants all to be saved, the whole of the created order. With salvation can come contentment, although thankfully it's not dependent on it. But God is deeply concerned about the lack of contentment, the absence of well-being of anyone. The hope of salvation has to include a concern for the well-being of all. So I think, to come back to where I began, I think that's what lies behind my personal concern about having joined the smug middle class. I can only be who I am. We can all only be who we are. But hopefully we're trying to be the people God wants us to be. The people God is shaping us to be. And to be God's people means that we together share a concern for the salvation and the contentment of all.
whoever we are and wherever God takes us. Perhaps in the process, we too, in our own way, may be able to say, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Not in a quietest way, but with the level of well-being that God alone can grant. And to the God who, in Christ, releases us all from the anxieties of consumption and from the hunger for unnecessary possessions, and by the Spirit enables us to be concerned for the salvation of all. Be all praise, now and always. Amen.